Turn with me in your Bibles, please, and let's remember what we studied the last time from Revelation chapter 1. We will begin our reading in verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, And I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about, with the, pa- girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am He that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. We've taken a very simple principle and we've drawn it out over these last few weeks. We have said that if we would profit from anything that we do, very simply the principle is that we must uh, have a right value on that thing. If we're going to uh, do something with our families, some special activity, a vacation, a day out at the park, a day out at the amusement park, whatever it is. Um, One of the things, one of the reasons we choose an activity like that is because we believe it to be something of importance. We put a value on it. It's got a recreational value, doesn't it? We want to go vacate for a couple of days or a week or whatever it is, an afternoon, because it's a valuable thing to us. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, one of the things that we will do in order to enhance that experience is we'll prepare, we'll plan, we'll pack a lunch, we'll pack some clothes, we'll set out a route, we'll do all kinds of things that make that, uh, that enhance the, the, um, the time that we're going to have because it's an important thing to do. What we've tried to do over these last few weeks is to raise up the value of public worship in all of our eyes so that we might profit more from it. We might have it, uh, that we might have a biblical point of view. And I will say at the outset, beloved, this, this is a challenging thing for us because it requires that we walk by faith and not by sight to an extent that perhaps most Christians are not uh, converse with. It's a, it's a thing of, and I want you to understand, I want you to understand, I'm not immune from this myself. I'm not immune to it myself. There are, there are uh, Lord's Days that, you know, I spend my time in preparation and I get up in the morning on the Lord's Day and I still don't feel ready. It's not my feelings, though, that matter. Right? It's, what my, it's what my duty is to you all and to the Lord and how I will obey that, you know, thinking covenantally. What if, what if the pastor doesn't show up? Well, you know, that's, that's not a good thing. <laughs> so it is important for us then, there are times where nature is going to rise up, our own natures. And that nature is going to throw up a roadblock. And that roadblock has to do with, in some way or another, undervaluing what we do here. The, the, the sluggard says, I can't go to work today because there's a lion in the streets. Right? So what does he do? He takes the impediment and he overvalues it and he undervalues his labor, his responsibility. Beloved, I don't want us to do that with regard to the public worship. And so we've spent, I think, more time than anybody in history <laughs> talking about the valuation of public worship from the scriptures. We looked at, at the first week, we talked about some general things. Then we just dove into valuation. And we said, we're going we're gonna to rightly evaluate the public worship service and what it's worth to God and to us. And we asked ourselves that question, and... When we ask that question, sometimes the answer that comes back is not, is not pleasant to us. It's convicting. I understand. It's convicting to me too. But it must not stop us from moving forward in this. So we looked at Galatians 4. And what do we learn from Galatians 4? That there is a Jerusalem which is above, and that's the mother of us all. That we want to... Feed upon that Jerusalem which is above, that is manifested in the place where the Lord chooses to set his name here on earth, but that it is, a, it is connected to heaven. There is only one church, beloved. There's not an invisible, invisible church. There's only one. There's its invisibility and its visibility, but it's the same church. And when we come to that Zion, that heavenly Jerusalem, we can expect that we might come to what Paul calls our mother to be nourished, 
to be nurtured, to be instructed, to be protected, to be cared for. Simply those phrases. I mean, how many of us would choose to be without our mother in this world? Well, very few of us. Most of us have very fond memories of their mother. Why do you think Paul uses that term in Galatians 4? So that we would have that same sort of valuation toward the church. Then we turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And we saw that there is a city called Zion. And all of those Old Testament principles then apply. This is the place where God has chosen to set his name. To reveal his name. To have his word preached. To have those ordinances come forth. This is where God says, I will meet with men. It's going to be extraordinary to expect to see a vision with a ladder like Jacob saw in Genesis 28. We should not expect that in this world. We should, however, expect that Christ will manifest his presence in the midst of his people as he promises to. And so we looked at the city itself as we've been counseled to do and even as we've read earlier today in Psalm 48. Walk about Zion. Know all of her palaces and so on. Then we graduated from that to the inhabitants. And this is truly a venerable company, folks we want to be with. An innumerable company of angels, the church of the firstborn ones, whose names are written in heaven. To God, the judge of all, the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Where? Where in the world are those people gathered together? Here, in this place, and in others like it. Not exclusively here, but in places where the word of God is faithfully preached. Sacraments are administered in their biblical purity, and church order and discipline is pressed to the hearts of God's people. That's where Christ promises to meet with his people. And then the last time we met, we turned to Revelation chapter 1. And we looked at that passage there where Jesus is said to walk among the seven golden candlesticks and to uphold the seven stars in his right hand. And we learned there that, that where Christ chooses to meet with his people, he reveals himself in this what we called his mediatorial regalia with his white hair. That is that he is pure and ancient and perfect and that he is eyes are piercing like fire that he is the all-knowing and all-seeing God we also saw him as our mediator clothed about with that golden girdle and the robe that went to the floor we saw also that his feet burned as though they had been burnished fine brass Brass is the metal of judgment, right? It is hard and unbending. And so Jesus leads in the way of straightness and with proper judgments. And then we heard his voice, fear not, I am the first and I am the last. And we said again, this is how Jesus reveals himself to his people in his church, in his public assembly. And this is the hard thing. For human beings. We must see Jesus in our assemblies. Through the lens of scripture. And not. Where is he? I don't see him. Or. I'm drowsy today. I'm having a hard time. 
I had a tough week. And all of those other things, all of those other lions in the streets that keep us from moving forward to our wonderful and beautiful labor, that spiritual labor of the Lord's Day to come and to worship God. We saw that there were many advantages for the people of God along the way. That that God in in so uh, calling us together uh, doesn't call us in such a way that is not profitable for us, but is extremely profitable for us. We learned that from our perspective, worship is a wonderful thing because the Lord condescends to meet with us, to feed us, to fill up our skirts, as we say, and to give us spiritual food for many days. It is here that the Lord reveals himself to us, that his knowledge comes forth. And isn't that what we need? More and more, the knowledge of God, as we've said. But we also saw from Psalm 87 from God's perspective, that he said, well, I love the gates of Zion more than all of the tents of Jacob. I prefer when my people gather in Zion's gates and conduct the business of Zion, that is, to worship me. That is more glorious for my glorious name. And so for that reason, we should love it more. Well, We take a look at all of these things, and I heard from you last week, several of you said that was a convicting sermon. It was convicting to study for and preach as well, yes. Yes, it is a convicting sermon. It is convicting to think about that there is a few hours every week where the Lord commands us to get out of our own skin and to take up what it means to serve Him with our strength. Just like an athlete we, we, we want to train for that. We want to prepare for that. And we know, don't we, beloved? And let me be a little bit easier here. In that we are always at different times peaking and valleying ourselves. That sometimes things come easier for us. And sometimes things come with greater difficulty for us. And there will be no perfection in the way we approach the Lord in this life. We get that. But we don't want to say... That because we don't have perfection, we don't have anything. Sometimes our own eyes deceive us. Uh, the Reverend Clarkson in his sermon will, will, will talk about an objector who says something like this. Pastor, I love you, but I disagree with you. I get more out of my secret worship than I do in public worship. Well, he's got several objections against that kind of a mindset. It's again an inward-focused mindset instead of an outward-focused mindset. We ought, beloved, to be all about what brings our God the greatest glory. And as we heard, the glory of God is more on display in public worship than in private. So we want to bring our sermon on our our series on valuation to a close today. And it is 
something that we will work on, I believe, for the rest of our lives. Uh, this having a proper value, placing proper value on the gathering of God's people. We see it, don't we? We see it sometimes on our faces. We see our human fatigue. We see our own weakness. Beloved, let us remember that we can remember that with hope, there will come a day where we will not be plagued with weakness. We will not be plagued with fatigue. We will stand before the Lord without our joints aching (laughs) for eternity. We will serve Him without any distraction, without detracting at all, Uh, from that wonderful, beatific, blessed focus that we have upon Him. And so if I might relate this afternoon to this morning, I would also say that we can grow in our practice of worship as well. The first thing that I think we need to do to grow in our practice of worship is what we've already done here. We must lay the foundation of the proper value of it. And if we understand its great value, then we will learn to prepare for it more, to be ready for it more, to put down some things that we are able to put down and bring up other things. Now, some of you are thinking, well, Pastor, the days of you being up half the night with your children are long gone. You don't remember. Oh, I do. I do. I remember. I remember how difficult some of those days were. I remember, maybe some of you can identify with this. I can remember standing at 3 or 3.30 in the morning next to my child's crib, patting them on the bottom, and I can remember thinking, oh Lord, please let them go to sleep. Lord, I need to get some rest. Please, Lord, help them to go to sleep. And I remember praying that prayer almost to the point of repetition. I'm sure some of you have prayed that prayer as well. And when... Sunday morning is that morning. Well, that's going to be a difficult day. It's not going to be the same as other days where things like that don't happen. Beloved, I'm not here to speak to you about those things that rise up and that draw off your necessary attentions. I'm not here to speak to you about that. I'm simply here to speak to you about all the other things that don't draw off your necessary attentions that do. And when those things rise up and they stand in the way of us worshiping the Lord, we might rightly desire to gather them up and to throw them in the brook Kidron or to put them in the bat caves and holes of the earth where they belong because suddenly they've risen up and taken the place of what we owe to the Lord. Oh, I know you're pressed into many, many necessary duties. And I understand it. I also know that very many times we are our own worst enemies in these kinds of things. And so we place valuation in the wrong place. And so we run ourselves ragged throughout the entirety of the week and on Saturday and perhaps even late into the evening such that we find it nigh impossible to focus on the Lord's day. Well, there are many things that we might talk about today um, in this wrap-up of valuation. 
Let's do this. First of all, very often we undervalue the ordinances and their stated scriptural power. Doctrine number one. We undervalue the ordinances and their stated scriptural power. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1, there is a preaching of the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ was evidently crucified among the Galatian churches. That's how Paul says it. Now we know historically that Jesus did not get crucified again in the churches of Galatia. But that when Paul ran through the churches of Galatia and preached Christ to them, it was as if, it was as vivid, it was as affecting as Jesus Christ was crucified before their very eyes. Why? Because the preaching of the cross is the power of God unto salvation. Do we have that same valuation of the preaching? The preaching of the gospel, the glory of God shines forth in it in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we believe that? And do we look to behold his glory? Not a bright shining light that fills the auditorium, but that glory of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. As our knowledge grows of him, as our eyes gaze upon him, and I mean the eyes of our mind, and we focus upon Christ, and we remember his greatness and power and humility and humiliation, as we remember his incarnation, as we remember his crucifixion and death and being buried and raised again. When Christ is preached, are we affected? Or is it, boy, I was up late last night. Proper valuation. Apart from the preaching of the word, salvation would be marginalized, right? Seeing that the foolishness of preaching is the means by which God has chosen to save those that believe. The world calls it foolishness. Beloved, let us not follow their example. Let us say with the Apostle Paul, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. When the word of God is being read, do we hear it as the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God? Is it clicking with us? Are we taking it in? Are we drinking it in? Or are we waiting until the reading is done so we can get to the pastor and his preaching? I hope not. I hope that in the reading of Scripture, there is a particular efficacy by the Spirit of the Word of God that's resonating in each of you. We might look at every element of worship, and eventually we will. But, beloved, in order for us to understand what is going on here, we must begin to value these elements and place upon them the value and efficacy that God has placed upon them, not what the world tells us about them. I've told you before, I tell you again, that there's this feeling among churches. It's a grievous thing to me to admit it, but it's true. I even myself at one time imbibed in this sort of understanding that, that once you cross a particular line, a threshold, that, you know, you can come and go because you're safe. It's like a game show. Oh, this person's safe. They can't be kicked off. Beloved, this is not how the Bible presents it. 
The Bible presents it that we come to church and we profit from the presence of Christ in our midst and that it is Christ that woos and draws and preserves and keeps us unto that great day. It's not a profession of faith that will keep you to that great day. It's not writing down a date in in your Bible that will keep you to that great day. It's Christ that will keep you by his means of keeping you to that great day. And this value is here and in other places where the word of God is rightly preached. The singing of psalms given to us by the Lord, is to advance our joy in Him, to increase the grace in our hearts. We sing with understanding so that we will profit and we will be edified. Psalm 47, 7, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. We sing also in a way, the apostle tells us, as a ministry one to another. Do you come dedicated to your brother and sister's spiritual well-being such that you sing out with understanding so that we may fulfill that which the apostle said when he said we are singing and making melody with our hearts unto the Lord but we are also singing we are edifying one another with our singing teaching and admonishing one another in psalms hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your hearts unto the Lord Do you come ready, beloved, to edify your brothers and sisters in your singing? Well, that might involve getting the psalms out ahead of time. That might involve making sure you know what part you're going to sing. Whether you know the words and have profited from them yourselves, so that they may be on your lips even after the service. And in those words, we teach and admonish one another. Will we profit from the prayers of the church if we fail to pray along with the leader? If we're simply watching. We want to pray along with the leader. We want, to, we want in our minds to be agreeing. And then at the end, as we get better as a congregation, we start to put into practice what we might call a corporate amen. At the end of our, of our verbal prayers being led by one of our elders, we might say amen as a people. Because we have listened, we have participated, we have heard, and we agree this is truth. May it be, Lord. The Lord has promised, beloved, his abiding presence in the ordinances of the ministry. So that he gave that ministry to the apostles. And do we come then to commune with him? Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 28. Turn with me there. <clears throat> 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Even unto the end of the world. Most Reformed and Presbyterian commentators will say what Jesus is saying there is it's not just with his disciples. It's not just with those that he was sending out right then. 
It's them as representing the teachers of the church of every age. And what does he say here? The same thing he says in Revelation chapter 1. I'll be with them. I will hold them in my right hand. Right? What is the method then that Jesus has given to his church for his people? What do we enjoy here that we can't enjoy in our homes per se? This true version of preaching and receiving. This true version of teaching and baptizing. We don't have that in our homes. Oh, I know, you can watch a video. I get that. But that's not, that's not the ordinance. That's not what God has given. He's given preaching for that. And so, uh, the Lord has promised his abiding presence in those ordinances of ministry. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in the administration of the sacraments, we come to the administration of the sacraments, both of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Beloved, I want to ask you, do you prepare? Are you ready to partake of those sacraments? It doesn't matter how often a church partakes. It matters how often, I'm sorry, how ready you are when you come. Are you ready to partake of the supper? It does matter, but not for the efficacy of it. I'm sorry, not for the, the, um, the um, what am I trying to say? I, let me back the phrase up. It is still the Lord's Supper if you partake of it more or less frequently. Right? We don't affect the essence of the supper by partaking of it more or less frequently. But we can, beloved, fail to profit from it if we're not ready if we're not prepared. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? There's no word on frequency there, but there is certainly a word on communion with Christ in the ordinance. That we learn to call upon His name, that we... Remember what each of those elements are given to us to signify and to seal and to exhibit. And it is in that way that we commune with Christ in the efficacy of his death. So, beloved, we want to come prepared for the sacraments. Uh, The Lord, by his minister and preacher, declares his word and his ways and his will to his people. Are we ready To listen to him. Do we recognize the great blessing it is to have the Lord speak with his people? Or have we undervalued the witness of the scriptures, preferring many other voices and confusion of tongues this world offers? In Nehemiah chapter 8, let us put ourselves in the historical situation for a moment. The exiles are coming back from Babylon. They had some ministry there. Uh, Ezekiel was there. Remember, and remember what the Lord said to Ezekiel. Oh yeah, the children of my people are talking about you by the sides of their houses. And they come to you as my people come and they say, what is the word of the Lord today? And they will hear you as one hears a fine song on a banjo, (laughs) on a guitar or whatever. Right? 
But then they'll walk away and they will not remember a word you've said. There was a ministry. It was scarce. It was sparse in Babylonia. But now they're coming back. And in coming back, they're they're doing what? They're doing what they ought to be doing. They're setting up the temple that they might once again enjoy the public worship of God in that venue. They offer, that they might offer sacrifices. That they might have a place for the Levites to be and to sing and to play the orchestra and to preach to them and to teach them the things of God. And so here in chapter 8, listen to what it says. Verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand. And all the ears of the people were attentive, or the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Maaseah on his right hand. And on his left hand Pediah and Mishael and Malchiah and Hashum and Hashbadana and Zechariah and Meshullam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people. And when he opened it all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with the lifting up of their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 12. And the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth. Why? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You know what a Lord does, you know what the Lord does to a people when they undervalue his ordinances, right? He takes them away, beloved. We recently went through a spate of that, didn't we, in our country? When the Lord actually commanded the doors to be shut all over this land. Well, that should have been a shot across our bow. It should have been a trumpet. It sounded in our ears that the Lord has been displeased with his people when they have gathered for worship. And we do our part, even as Reformed Presbyterians that are so tightly regulated, sometimes we don't know what, our do, what we're doing. We still should have taken note that we too have much improvement to make in our hearts and in our practice. I will tell you as your pastor, I don't know how to do this in any other way, but to tell you or to ask you or to, or to demand of you that you value the worship of God as you should, that I value it as I should. And if we do so, we will, beloved, profit from it. And if we don't, we won't. It will be a drudgery. It will be a burden to us. You'll remember that the priests in Malachi chapter 1 said, it's just a weariness. And remember that they had a lot more to do physically than we do when they came to worship. We might understand some physical weariness on their part. 
The next point is sometimes our focus is too often on carnal things. We, if we focus on carnal things rather than the spirituality of the worship of God, we will cut that benefit short. We entertain thoughts about the ministry that are improper. Notice Matthew chapter 13 for a moment. Verse 53. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue. Insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man wisdom that these, uh, and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. They undervalued what Christ brought them. They didn't hear him as that inspired teacher of God's word, as God the Son, the preacher of preachers. I'm not asking that you value any minister like that. But I am asking that you would value ministers of the gospel in such a way that they get the benefit of the doubt when they preach the word of God to you. Because that is God's ordinance. We don't want to prejudice the ministry in our minds in such a way that we undervalue what God has placed a high premium on. If they did that to Christ, they will do it to anyone. We often bring the worship of God under our judgment rather than being judged by it. 1 Corinthians 14 Verse 22, wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them which believe not, but for them which believe. Therefore, if therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? Well, that's not what they said on the day of Pentecost. They said they're drunk. Right? So they found a way to push the word of God out of their purview so that they didn't have to hear it, didn't they? Or perhaps the expectations of other things stand in the way. Turn with me to Amos chapter 8, verse 4. Hear this. O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances of deceit? I've got a lot of things to do. This Sabbath day is a kink in my, in my path, Right? That's what was going on in Amos's day. Or sometimes it is that we are simply not attentive. We are wearied by our worship because of distractions and affinities we might have elsewhere. And that's where I will cite Malachi 1.13. What a weariness is it. 
So we come unprepared, distracted. We undervalue what God has placed a premium on. Beloved, I'm here to tell you today that the Sabbath is a tithe of your waking hours unto the Lord. And we owe him one whole day in seven. And the Lord says, if you will come and commune with me on my holy day, I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth. His promises are sure. When Saturday then is spent as a day of extreme activity and no time given to the rest we reasonably need, the Lord's Day then often ends up being a day of physical instead of spiritual resting, ceasing, and thus we entertain what we believe to be innocent desires for idleness and downtime rather than the refreshment to our souls the ordinances of worship are meant to be from their author. This is an interesting thing to think about. Um, we live in a wonderful age that most people, not everybody, but a lot of people, actually get what we, what we call in our day a weekend. And what do we mean by a weekend? We mean that there are five days that we normally consider working days, and then there are two days uh, that we're off. Um, all of the ladies are saying, yeah, you've never been a mom. No, I, I know, I understand that. There's not a day off for mothers. I will tell you that there's not a day off for pastors either, but we could compare notes maybe sometime. But the point that I'm making is that we take Saturdays, don't we? And very often we're encouraged in our society to take Saturdays as this day of extreme recreation. You know, we've been, we've been pent up working all week, and now we want to cut loose with some great recreation on Saturday. And so the, often that ends up going late into the day, and we don't get any physical rest. We work all week and then we don't get the physical rest on Saturday that we might otherwise need. And so many people have relegated in our society Sunday as their day of physical rest. And they, they mistake what, what the word rest means with regard to the Sabbath. They mistake that. They think it means uh, that, you know, I don't have to work. Uh, in fact, some some uh, groups will tell you you can sit around your jammies all day. You know, you come to church for an hour and then you go back and you lay in bed all day. Because you need your rest. It's not that kind of rest, beloved. The Sabbath is a day of rest for our souls. It's a day of resting in Christ. It's a day of beholding his good things, of partaking of his dainties. The word delicacy is used, right? Call the Sabbath of, of, of the Lord a delight, the delectable thing, that delightsome thing in Isaiah 58. It's that day where the king throws open the doors of his palace and tells us to come on in and partake of his dainties. He's going to put out the best stuff for you on the Lord's day. That's what the king does week by week. Yet very often what happens is this may not be uh, you know, done even purposefully, but if it's done without purpose, you see the difficulty there. The king throws open his gates Throws open the doors of his palace, sets out the, you know, let's, let's just go ahead and ride on down this road. Sets out the fudge and the sweetmeats and the breads and all that stuff. And everybody says, I'm too tired to get there today. I'm too tired. I've spent my savor on other things. That's the time when we have undervalued the things that the Lord offers us week by week. And those are the things that we must avoid then. 
So we want to develop, as we've said, that weekly cadence that we would learn more and more to enjoy the things of God, those dainties that he sets out. And beloved, what are those dainties? It's the preaching of his word, the reading of it, the administration of the sacraments, the singing of psalms, public prayer, fellowship as the people of God speak often one with another, and so on. All of those things. It's the order and discipline of the church as well, because those things keep us in the right enjoyments of that greatly valued thing, Zion and her business. So, do we come with expectation, which is the fruit of faith? There was an encounter between Jacob, whose name that night was changed to Israel, one who prevailed with God. Beloved, I have to ask you and I have to ask me. Do we come to prevail? Do we come to prevail or do we come to be prevailed upon? Do we come refusing to release the angel until you have received that blessing? A few weeks ago in our seminary study, we were studying that famous portion of scripture Thomas Watson, you know, uh, heaven taken by storm. You remember that. Violent men take it by force. What was John Baptist all about? What kind of a guy was he? What is Jesus actually saying in that parable, in that example? He's saying, what, did you go out to see John because you thought he was a, a weak and, and effeminate guy? Is that why you went out to see him? No, you went out to see him because he was a prophet. A tough guy. A guy dressed in camel's hair, eating locusts. That's why you went out to see him, because he stood in the spirit and power of another tough guy, Elijah, that you remembered from your history. Do you think then that seeing that John is not a part of the New Testament kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God will be taken by any less than violent men who will take it by force? You went out to see John because you thought he was a man's man, a real prophet. Good. Now remember that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Now go take the kingdom by force. With both hands. It's that pearl of great price that nothing is worth having except it. It's that field where the treasure has been hidden. And you sell everything to buy that field. This is the kind of value that the Lord has placed on his assembly. It must be our valuation as well. So in closing then, let us remember several things for our encouragement. This won't sound encouraging at the first, but truly it is. Turn with me to Isaiah 59. Verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. 
Remember how I told you it wouldn't sound encouraging, but it really is? It's not the Lord keeping you from himself. It's not him. He is all go on that. He is all come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's his mind on this. It's our own sins and our own iniquities and our own distractions and our own lack of valuating properly that keep us from a close communion with God. But if it rests here rather than there, then the remedy is also here. Beloved, hear this encouragement then. The Lord is all go, and He will encourage even small movements toward Himself in a right valuation of His worship. He's in the business of doing that. That's what he does. Secondly, let me make sure I'm in. Yeah, there we are. The way to the public worship of God and the ordinance themselves are more comfortable in our days as compared to many that have gone before us. Let's take that as an encouragement also. Peter will rise up in Acts chapter 15. And what will he say? Why do you want to put on the yoke of the Gentiles something we nor our fathers were able to bear? What's he talking about? The Mosaic cultus. So far had the religion of, of Jehovah, um, how shall I say this? Let me ask the question. When do we read in scripture in any of the histories that we go through one year, two years, three years, where all of the cylinders are firing. We don't. We come to extraordinary times that we call revivals, but what are they truly? They're simply the proper order being brought to pass. It's just the proper order. In the days of Hezekiah, let's turn to 2 Chronicles 29, and we'll close with this. I want to encourage you as we close. 2 Chronicles chapter 29. We don't have time to read the entirety of the chapter. But Hezekiah had it in his mind from the Lord that as king, he was going to make sure that the Levites did their jobs and prosecuted the Passover as it was given in Scripture by Moses. That they were going to do what the Lord had commanded them in Moses and then later in David with regard to the, to the Levitical choir and priesthood. There were difficulties The people weren't ready, and the priests weren't ready. They had not properly prepared. And so it came time for the day, because there was a particular day on which the Passover must be killed, and the priests weren't ready to kill it. And the Lord said, through the prophet to Hezekiah, 
Let the Levites do it. Consecrate them and let them do it instead. The people have gathered. We're going to go ahead with something that is slightly out of the due order, yet not so far out as to, as to be something different. And the Levites will kill the Passover instead because the priests are not ready. And there were some people also that had come, and because they were so ill-practiced at it, they ate the Passover and they were unclean. But Hezekiah the king prayed for them. And it says, And the Lord God heard him and forgave them. You hear that? Even a halting and failing effort, even a, a, an effort that is still given to some error is received by the Lord. Beloved, let's give ourselves to this great valued thing, this public worship, these ordinances. Let us have the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 42 and in Psalm 43. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him. Let us ask the Lord to restore unto us that place of of, of worship in our thoughts and in our affections that we might come forth and commune with him, that we might say, how lovely are thy tabernacles, O Lord. Let us rightly value the worship service. And in so valuing it as we ought, let us watch as the Lord lifts up our hearts unto himself. And communes with us just as he promised he would. Let's stand and call upon the Lord. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank thee for what we have heard today. As convicting as it might be. And as encouraging as it might be. O Lord, we pray that thou would speak to us. That we might take these things with us. And that we might continue to hear Lord, we pray, help us to meditate on our own practice. And Father, we confess that between us and what Thou dost command is a very wide gulf. We confess our inattention and sin and our undervaluing. So we pray, Lord, that Thou wouldst draw us to Thyself and give us Thy heart Help us to hold dear what thou dost hold dear. And we pray, Lord, that thou wouldst grant us some refreshment and encouragement along the way, for we confess that we are a weak people, often easily turned aside with our own weaknesses and afflictions. Be with those who could not be with us today, Lord, that they might yearn to return. In Christ Jesus' name we ask. Amen.